our sector, the men and women in our sector, look, they want they want a clean environment just like everybody else. Uh, but more importantly, the solution to get to that low carbon future is really going to come from the technological solutions that are created by those men and women in the OFS sector. And we need to get that message across. Um, we're not part of the problem. We're going to be part of the solution. The Energy and Transition podcast is the first of its kind, exploring the critical role of oil and gas in energy transition. Energy transition is not transition away from hydrocarbons. It's a collaborative effort towards a lower carbon future. And these are the stories of the companies and people that are actively reducing emissions and actually getting us there. Leaders from all sectors will discuss industry trends and topics like emerging technologies, global energy demand, access to capital markets, ESG, and workforce innovation. This podcast is sponsored by Lockton Companies and Galtway Marketing. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back to the Energy and Transition podcast. We are recording in the Fletcha Azul Tequila Studio in Houston, and this is Leslie Beyer, your host. I want to thank our sponsors today, the Energy Workforce and Technology Council, a new group we're going to talk about, Galtway Marketing, and Lockton Global Energy and Marine. Today, I'm excited to introduce our special guest for this special episode. It's Tim Tarpley, Senior Vice President for Government Affairs at the Energy Workforce and Technology Council. Welcome, Tim. Thanks, Leslie. Glad to be here. Um, so today we are going to cover a couple of things. First of all, what is the Energy Workforce and Technology Council? We'll hit that first. And then Tim is going to walk through everything that we're seeing on the government affairs front right now, whether that's um, all of these executive orders that are coming out of the Biden administration, what the energy industry needs to be doing right now to position ourselves, um, and and what we can be doing moving forward as as we see all of this play out. So First of all, um, Tim and I are just going to talk for a second about the merger of PISA and the AESC, which was the Association of Energy Services Companies uh, merging together. We announced that last week, and we've created the Energy Workforce and Technology Council. That group now represents 600 member companies in the global energy supply chain, um, all of the oil field services companies, the equipment suppliers and manufacturers, wireline, pressure pumping, um, all the way to logistics, propent, everything that you really see in the global supply chain is, is what this group um, represents. And so Tim and I both are really happy to be representing them. And, and really, we're going to get into a little bit of that. But Tim, did you want to share anything else about the merger from, from your end? Yeah, so you know, it's the merger is going to, I think, be beneficial to to all the companies, both both the former AESC companies and the former PISA companies. Uh, it's going to give us a stronger voice to really represent the sector, uh, and I think the new entity really is more representative of really our companies and what they do. Uh, you know, we're talking about energy. Our companies do all kinds of energy. Um, also, we are growing our voice. We're representing the whole supply chain of of the OFS sector. Uh, going from around 200 companies to 600 companies. Uh, the other thing really, really good on the government affairs side is that these companies, these 600 companies, they're all over the country. 
Um, they're in places like West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, places where we need political connections. We need to be able to go into members of Congress from those regions and say, and say, you know, here's, here's the companies that are in your district. Um, here's why this issue we're talking about matters to you and should matter to you, uh, and your constituents. So really it only strengthens our voice. It's, I think the merger is going to be great for, for all those involved and really looking forward to, to, you know, meeting a lot of the new companies and figuring out um, what their issues are and how we can uh, better represent them. You raised a really important part of all this during <clears throat> the merger. Um, the associations both have renamed themselves and rebranded as the Energy Workforce and Technology Council. And I agree, it's, it's important for people to understand those two words, workforce and technology, um, really describe who we are. The bulk of the energy workforce is represented within our member companies. Um, we are 5 million individuals strong at this point. And then the technology that comes out of this sector is really uh, just our calling card. You know, everything that is being developed right now and, and that comes out of a lot of the service providers um, and these energy technology companies is what's going to get us to a lower carbon future. So um, I think it's important, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, that we talk about how those two words, ener energy workforce and then technology, are hugely critical and incredibly descriptive of these 600 members. That's a great point. And, you know, what's that phrase? You, know, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. Well, our, our name is the first thing that, you know, when we're going to meet with a member of Congress or their staff, that's the first thing that they're going to get from us. They're going to get, you know, okay, who are these folks we're meeting with? Workforce and technology, it's our best talking points, and we're opening, opening with those. Um, so I think names do matter. Uh, I think, I think it's, it is important because it's the first impression, uh, that folks are going to get from us. So, uh, I think, I think it's a good representation of where we are and where we're going as a sector. Me too. And I know our board <clears throat> is excited. Um, we're about to enter in this integration period. Uh, we'll have a board equally represented from, uh, the PISA and the AESC side, an advisory board with equal representation on that too. So, it's just a great um, strengthening of our voice, as you say. So we talked about workforce, and I thought maybe we could start there, um, Tim, with kind of your expertise and, and your views on some of this. We know that our energy workforce was battered just because of the pandemic, in addition to others, but really with demand crush, we've just ton we lost a ton of jobs. Um, and many of those people see the incoming administration as adversarial. Um, so what are some areas where the industry could find common ground with President Biden, with this administration, and then also legislatively, the House and Senate? Um, how, how can we look at this in any kind of area of opportunity in, in the environment of what feels like, you know, very antagonistic? It's a great question. And uh, I think, first of all, is, you know, you always got to be positive, right? An, an administration change brings new challenges, but it also brings opportunities. And if you're going to be an effective uh, participant in it, you need to identify where you can where you can find those opportunities and then and then and then work on those. Uh, the first thing that needs to happen, um, and this, this this really, whoever's in the White House, whoever's in control of the Senate and whoever's control of the House, um, you know, our industry needs to break down this us versus them mentality. There's a lot of folks, uh, you know, in the current administration or, or you know, uh, I guess I would say on the, on the left who see uh, oil and gas as, as kind of the enemy, right? 
the the enemy of 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 moving towards a carbon a low carbon future. That's that that's not couldn't be any farther than the truth. Um, our sector, the men and women in our sector, look they want they want a clean environment just like everybody else. Uh, but more importantly, the solution to get to that low carbon future is really going to come from the technological solutions that are created by those men and women in the OFS sector. And we need to get that message across. Um, we're not part of the problem. We're going to be part of the solution. And that, um, that mentality is so important. Um, and you ask where, where can we find to work together? Well, I think there's going to be a lot, of, a lot of opportunities for the, the first uh, that's coming up the pike, probably the, the, the soonest is on the infrastructure package. So, you know, in, in, in the Senate, um, a number of senators have worked together to create a hundred billion dollar national green, green bank to fund green energy programs. Um, it's very important that, that we make sure that, you know, traditional oil and gas companies who are working in renewable, renewable space, who are coming up with new technologies, which many of our companies are, uh, you know, think, things like, uh, offshore wind that a lot of our companies are, are, are with, uh, you know, Halliburton just started an incubator for, 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 uh, clean energy. It's very important that our companies be allowed to access those funds and then they, they should be. Um, you know, but there are folks who are trying to say, Hey, if, if you're a traditional oil and gas company, you should be excluded from, from participating in, in that. That's a really important, um, it's very important for our industry that we, ensure that we don't get blocked off from accessing infrastructure programs like this because there are folks that want to do that. They want it only to go to companies that are 100% involved in, in the green space. And that's not right. You know, it's taxpayer money. Uh, our companies have or have the ex experience, they have the engineers and they to, to, really, um, to really engage in this space. But if they get cut off at the beginning, before they can even have have an opportunity, you know that that's that's gonna that's gonna be a negative thing. So that's something we really need to work on there. Um, other areas where we're already working with the administration is you know on the orphan well issue. Uh, former uh, representative Torres Small, we worked with her on a bill um, to provide two billion dollars in funding for um, OFS companies to plug abandoned orphan wells. Uh, she did not win re-election. Um, which was, was unfortunate because we were, were working with her on this, but we've now started p picking up with some of the other members of the New Mexico delegation on that bill. So there, there is plenty of areas where we can work together. Um, but again, it's very important that our sector ensure that we are not cut off from participating in, in a lot of these, uh, you know, new activities. Um, and I think that's, that's really important going forward. One of the things that I thought was great when <clears throat> I was watching your team work on that, I mean, Tori Smalls was a Democratic member of Congress, you know, um, and voted with her caucus pretty mm. regularly on certain issues, but also understood oil and gas. And I know that you've also really laid the groundwork, um, for Legacy PISA and now the council in making relationships with, you know, elected officials from that caucus who may better understand um, us and, and and I know that um, you know you you've had some some meetings with Representative Gonzalez with Vincent De Gonzalez from South Texas. Um, did you want to talk about how he's already maybe come out in support of us at least slightly? Right. Um, it's all about b making connections and 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 making our sector, our the men and women of our industry, relevant to those members of Congress. The margins in both the Senate and the House are, are very small, right? We're talking about eight or nine folks in the House and the Senate, really just one. 
Uh, so you don't have to, you just have to convince a couple members to get on your side. And that's really what we're doing. That's our strategy when we have these close margins. Uh, you mentioned, uh, Congress, Congressman Gonzalez. You know, he has, he has a lot of our workforce in his district. Um, so we, you know, we, we, we went to him and talked a lot about this, this federal lands issue and, and explained how, how significant it was to, to our companies and to, to, to our individuals who are, who are in fact his constituents. Um, you know, and he, he went out and organized a letter, um, with four other members of Congress to the Biden administration saying, Hey, uh, slow this down a little bit. This is actually going to really affect us. Uh, and that kind of activity from, uh, you know, from the Democratic side is incredibly important. And that's, that's, that's really what we're aiming to do here, uh, in this administration. We know we're not going to stop everything, but we can get enough members on our side to slow things down and make, uh, make policies you know, I, I guess the term I would use is less bad than they would have been otherwise. <laughs> um, <laughs> less bad. it's not great grammar, but it, it, it really is. It's descriptive. It's descriptive <laughs> of, what, of what it is. We're not going to necessarily stop it, but we, we might make it less bad than it would have been otherwise. And so uh, those kind of relationships are very important to that. Right. Well, you <clears> mentioned <throat> the federal lands um, and certainly not only just in the first 100 days, but in the first like day or two, we saw <laughs> a lot of executive orders come down. So what are the impacts of those early actions on climate um, and the ones that you think that we really have have planned for the first 100 days? How does that affect our workforce, energy production in the U.S.? Um, and then if we're talking about that, what do you also expect from the Biden infrastructure plan? Yeah, so obviously we've had so much come at us in in. Yeah, first hundred days. I mean, it's, what, what what are we on day like fourteen right now? Yeah. We've had already, already had all this this come at us. A um, couple of things have happened though. You know, worth mentioning. Obviously, you know, right off the bat, the Biden administration did an executive order, uh, essentially killing the Keystone Pipeline. They rescinded the permit, uh, which, for all intensive purposes, you know, kills kills the project. Um, interestingly enough, though, it is worth mentioning that that may not be a done deal. Because last night in the Senate, they were voting on uh, on the budget. So they, were, they did what they call a votorama, which is there's just every possible amendment on every policy uh, that, that, that the Senate could come before the Senate. A, a, a member of the Senate will introduce an, an amendment along those lines. They're not binding. So they're not um, they're not necessarily changing, you know, policy. They're not, they're not creating law. But they're, these voteramas are very important because it gives us basically a test vote to see how the Senate it would vote when, when, when this policy came down. And Keystone, some language it didn't necessarily um, say that we support reversing the Biden executive order, but it did support Keystone XL uh, being, being uh, built, passed by uh, one vote in the Senate. So, and Manchin switched over and voted with the Republicans on that. So that's important because it shows that, uh, you know, there may be some pushback on Keystone against the administration. Um, and I'm sure that the administration is paying attention to that and saw that vote. And, you know, maybe they back off a little bit. On that. So that's that's good to see. I, I want to go back and I like that's our vocabulary <laughs> word of the day is Votorama. <laughs> also, I like Cromnibus. And we could talk about that one later. But <laughs> We like to make up these nerdy words, and it's it's very interesting. 
It is. It is. And, uh, you know, the thing about a Votorama is they go very late in the night. So staffers do not enjoy Votorama nights because <laughs> uh, they usually go to about two in the morning. And I, I don't know how late it went last, last night, but I'm sure it was it was close to that. Uh, you know, if past if past experiences uh, <laughs> would be indicative. Yeah. These days you can't get Chick-fil-A delivered to the Capitol anymore. So. Yeah, I don't think they're I don't think they're allowing deliveries anymore. So. <laughs> Goodness. Okay. So what about as far as the impact on some of these that you see? Um, do you want to kind of talk through that, you know, how it affects the energy production potentially? Definitely. Um, so, you know, s- some of the other things that have, that came out in that, in that first batch of executive orders, uh, and it could be very impactful. What everyone's talking about the federal lands, uh, executive order, and we'll talk about that later. And we, and we should, it's very important. Uh, everyone's talking about the Keystone executive order. But there's some other things in there that that kind of fell off the radar as much. It didn't get as much media attention that I think are worth mentioning. Uh, one of them I wanted to flag was just kind of buried in in there was an executive order that directed uh, DNI, uh, Director of National Intelligence, to begin studying the national security implications of climate change. So, you know, it's very easy to just look at that and be like, oh, okay, that's some DC... Um, you know, speak, it's not going to ever amount to anything. And I think it might be a little bit more impactful than that. I, I really think what that is, is, it, is it's the first step in, in a long-term move to, okay, DNI is going to do the study six months from now, they're going to come back with some, uh, some, some recommendations. You know, one of those recommendations could be that, you know, climate change is in fact a threat to national security and that the Biden administration could de- declare a climate emergency. Um, if they do that, then all of a sudden you could, you could do, um, emergency powers a lot, a lot easier. It would give, you know, folks like, uh, John Kerry, maybe some more power to do cross agency actions on climate change. Uh, so this is something I think really we need to watch as, as, as an industry because, um, it could be a way to get some of these policies that I, I think are more on the marginal side of, of, of having support through, uh, under the, after the declaration of a climate emergency. So uh, it's something to watch mm-hmm. and it's something that certainly a lot of folks on on the left are urging the Biden administration to do. Uh, so that's something else to watch um, on the executive order front that that uh, that kind of came under a little bit on the radar uh, was was that language with DNI as well. And then at the end of the day, all this is really going to do in my when I hear the director of, of national security thinking about, you know, how this impacts our national security, it makes us more reliant on foreign oil. So that's it. Like, that's the answer. How, how do we not come to that answer quickly you, and easily? You, you're 100% correct. Um, by by cutting off uh, oil and gas production in the United States, it makes us more reliant on foreign oil. Uh, also, a very important uh, point there is that by exporting uh, LNG from the United States to places like Eastern Europe, and Asia, geopolitically, there could not be a bigger um, benefit to the United States by removing the Russian stranglehold on Eastern Europe and also by uh, providing our allies in Asia a clean source of, of energy that's stable and reliable from a, from a good ally. That, that benefits that is our national, national security. security. Of course. Additionally, and this is also important, is you know, by exporting LNG, we're allowing places like in Asia, 
uh, in Eastern Europe that, that are relying on coal for their power generation. We're allowing them to shut down those coal-fired power plants and replace them with natural gas, which is has a dramatic effect on carbon. Uh, so not only is it good for our national security, but we're exporting a cleaner source of energy that's going to lower the carbon uh, all around the world, which we all live on the same same earth. So you lower the carbon somewhere else, it's, it's going to be good for everybody. So, you know, just on the, on the as far as geopolitics go, you know, the, limiting LNG exports just doesn't make sense. Uh, and I think if you look at it from an, at an honest, um, if you look at it, uh, the data, uh, honestly, you, every, everybody would come to that conclusion. The problem is, is, you know, some people just say, well, if we're exporting LNG, then it means more drilling in the United States. We're so we're against it. And they're, 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 and they end their analysis at that. And they don't really look at the truth uh, and all the benefit from it. That is an ongoing, you know, and I see that conversation start to bubble up more. People talk about why are we not looking at mitigating risk in the, for example, in the renewable supply chain? Mm -hmm. You know, how much are we going to be reliant on China if all we are able to use is battery powered when when they contain most of the rare earth minerals, like 80%? It's a great point. Um, you know, every every source of energy has a supply chain needed needed in order to create it. You know, solar panels are unfortunately we're not producing those domestically, a, a very small amount. Most of them are coming imported from China, and, and one of the reasons why it's so affordable is because you know the Chinese uh, subsidized that that production. Um, so we we have to be mindful of that, and 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 when we talk about energy policy, we we have to analyze all the different forms of energy, what their cost is, uh, what the availability is, uh, where the supply chain comes from. Uh, how sustainable it all is, uh, and 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 I think when you make that analysis, I think you know uh, oil and natural gas has to be a very big part of our energy mix, it, uh, and it just doesn't make sense. It, it's, it's it's not workable without that being a part of it. Right. Um, but it's our job it, to 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 get that message out there and to be part of that debate. Um, you know, that is our job, and and yeah. that is a hundred percent how I see it. Um, absolutely. So you mentioned Senator Manchin and how he crossed over in, in the Votorama. Um, what kind of energy and environment legislation do you see passing a 50-50 Senate? Um, is Kamala Harris going to have a role in a lot of this? I know everybody is like, Senator Manchin is the bell of the ball for a minute. Um, so what is, what does that look like? <laughs> well, Senator Manchin is, is the most important person in, in Washington, D.C., and probably will be at least for the next two years. Mm -hmm. um, you know, who knows what happens with the House, you know, in two years. Uh, but two years in, in politics, is that's that's a long time away. So we, we don't know what's going to happen there. But for right now, Senator Manchin is, is kind of the king. He is the kingmaker, um, which is not a bad thing. He is generally pro-oil and gas. He has drilling in West Virginia. They also have a large, you know, coal industry that, that he, um, you know, wants to protect. Uh, so I wouldn't say he's he's an he's an enemy of our industry. I think he's I think he's I think he's an ally. Um, the other thing that, that kind of helps us a little bit is both Manchin and, and some other senators have said that they don't support ending the filibuster. So that is a backstop there as well. Uh, but it's important to remember that you can't filibuster everything. So the filibuster isn't going to stop everything. You can also there's procedural um, strategies that you can get around the filibuster. For in fact, budget reconciliation is a process that they could use to get some policies through that would get around the filibuster. Um, so really, you can't, like I said, you can't rely on it all the time. Really, you have to more more rely on being able to bring over two or three senators uh, on a particular uh, policy 
and and that's how that's how you stop it. Uh, or you or you or you stop it in the house. You know, you need about you know nine or ten members in in the house, depending on on who all is voting. Um, that's really and that's our strategy. That's that's our strategy as an industry is working those margins. Uh, we don't have to convince everybody to be with us. We just need to convince a couple of senators and a couple of members in the house, and you can slow things down. Um, that's why things like that that letter that that Representative Gonzalez signed sent were so, are so important because they're a message to the administration, hey, whoa, 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 slow down a little bit here. Um, and that's that's very important. This episode of the Energy and Transition podcast is sponsored by Milestone Environmental Services, whose commitment to environmental stewardship and protecting customers, employees, regulators, and neighboring communities make it a leader in the transition to a cleaner energy future. Milestone provides innovative, dependable solutions for non-hazardous waste disposal, which helps their EMP partners improve efficiency and environmental performance in the production of oil and gas. Milestone builds strong customer relationships with a deliberate, proven approach that industry trusts to keep the environment safe. Known for its passion for customer service, Milestone strives to exceed expectations in all they do. Far ahead, always nearby, that's Milestone. I agree. And, and I love that that's how you've developed the council strategy. Um, and, I, and I see our sister trade associations saying, look, we're working on the margins. We're, we're getting ready to double down on litigation where necessary, <laughs> but we're also going to work on the margins. Right, right. Um, so when we first opened, you talked about when we were talking through the name and about how the OFS sector really leads um, in these emerging technologies that are, that are going to transition us to lower carbon energy future. What can the federal government do to support and help? I mean, you kind of touched on that, that there will be some funding, especially from the Department of Ener- Energy. What, what all do you see us really being able to, to see as an opportunity with the federal government there? Yeah. So just want to reiterate this point because it's so important. The, the, the most important thing for the federal government to do is to not exclude our sector, our the men and women in our sector, the technology that they have created, don't don't exclude us from the table. Don't exclude us from the discussion. Don't exclude us from uh, research and development money through DOE, which some have suggested that they they should do. Don't don't exclude us from a you know an infrastructure package. Uh, that's the number one thing they can do. The 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 you know the Department of Energy. Um, Department of Interior, they need to see our sector as allies and part of the solution, which we will be. We are part of the solution, um, not not the enemy. It's not it's not them versus us. Uh, we're part of the solution. So that's that's really the number one thing that that you know really I I, I think the federal government needs to do is 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 let us be part of that discussion. Right. We talked about the executive order that came out on federal lands. Do you? I know you're leading a coalition. Um, the council is is directing that with a lot of our sister trades to try and get some some honest data about federal lands and energy production that takes place there. Um, do you want to kind of walk through that? What are the economic ripples that could come from the the ban on on leasing in federal lands? Yeah, this is a, this is a very impactful um, executive order, and I think. It's not only important for what it does immediately, but what it could lead to as as we go forward and as, you know, the administration may be coming under pressure to even expand expand it from where we are. A um, couple of things I want to mention. Uh, tw- currently, 12% of U.S. natural gas is produced in federal lands and waters. So right off the top, 
um, this executive order is going to start limiting new leasing on federal lands. So that could potentially be a significant chunk of natural gas production. And as we talked about before, um, if you look at the carbon savings in the United States since 2005, the most carbon savings from any renewables or anything else has come from transitioning coal-fired power plants to natural gas. In fact, it's that has saved 2.8 billion metric tons of carbon since 2005. So cutting off further development in our lands and in our waters where we produce a lot of this natural gas is is counterintuitive uh, to to the environmental goals of which which they espouse as as being the goal of the executive order. So that's that's a big impact there as well. And then also you're talking about significant amount of jobs. Um, you know, drilling on federal lands supports 145,000 jobs in New Mexico, 609,000 in Pennsylvania, and 700,000 in Ohio. Um, these jobs aren't going to all go away right away because of the executive order, but over time, they're going to they're slowly get chipped away uh, because there won't be any new leasing. Um, all of that being said, the other big fear is that this isn't the end, is that you know the the president is coming under a lot of pressure to to not just cut off new leases to go back and start cutting off permitting it, the you know folks on the in the left side of his party are already encouraging him to do that uh and we've seen some moves you know in the past week where new permits have been questioned by uh department of interior uh so we're hopeful that that's not you know indicative of of kind of a larger um strategy to really cut back on permitting. So I think we really, really have to watch, watch that. Um, but you know, what, what we'll hear from, from, from supporters of the, this executive order is don't worry. It's only new leasing. We're not going to kill any, it's not going to go after any jobs. Everything's going to be fine. Well, you know, as, as, as a sector and as an industry, we need to push back on that talking point because you can't have an industry that can't grow, right? If if you can't get new leases, you you, you can't get go out and get financing. Um, you know, they, it's just going to be very hard in the, in the long term when you're talking over two and three years uh, to really have a sustainable business plan when you when you can't access new leases on federal land. Uh, obviously, this will be more impactful in places like New Mexico than it will be in Texas. In Texas, you know, almost all the drilling occurs on on private lands. Um, so it's, it's a geographic thing. It's going to be very impactful, obviously offshore economies of, 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 uh, Texas and Louisiana are very tied to, to the offshore. And then when you have places like New Mexico, where a lot of the onshore drilling occurs on federal lands. And a lot of it too, <clears throat> the royalties from the onshore drilling and federal lands goes to fund conservation projects. I mean, I know that's one thing that the Western Energy Alliance has talked about quite a bit is how much of that. Um, actually really keeps the air and water clean. Yep. Um, you do you have details on that? Well, just last year, um, drilling on federal lands, oil and gas generated 11 points, excuse me, $11.7 billion in tax revenue for federal, state, and local, and tribal governments. Um, you know, our state and local governments are, are, are faced with a tremendous financial crisis due to COVID. Uh, folks aren't going to, um, out to eat as much. They're not, they're not spending as much money. You know, a lot, a lot of these state and local localities get a lot of their revenue from hotel tax and, and car tax. That's all gone or, or at least diminished. So now we're taking another source of revenue away from these, these entities. Uh, it's just counterintuitive. 
doesn't make a lot of sense. And it's, it's a, it's a point we really need to get across, uh, as we talk about these policy issues. These, deci- these decisions ha- have implications. There's, there is real world implications for this, uh, that I think we need to make sure we highlight. Absolutely. So shifting from domestic to international trade policy, um, you know, we struggled a little bit with the Trump administration with some of the international trade policies were certainly detrimental um, for our industry. We had to work against the tariffs and all of that. We spent a lot of time on that these past few years. How do you see this administration, you know, kind of approaching that? What, what's that going to mean for the balance of international energy trade and production? How does it change our relationship with Saudi Arabia? How does it change our relationship with China? And I think all this gets back to national security at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but but what do you think on tariffs and anything specific on Iran? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's um, I, I always hate to answer this way. You know, I think the jury is still out on some of this. We, we just don't know. Um, President Biden, uh, you know, he, he, he has inherited uh, a tough situation. He's obviously got a huge domestic crisis with COVID. Um, so he is very much focused on that. He has not yet really jumped into international affairs and foreign policy as much as you would have thought in, 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 in another scenario. I mean, he loves foreign affairs. That's his, that's his passion. Uh, he just hasn't had the ability to do that because he's got this COVID, COVID crisis thrown at him as soon as he takes, as soon as he takes office. Um, with all that being said, I don't think we're going to see a dramatic change in the China policy. Uh, right away. And I get this question a lot from, from companies, you know, they've been calling me the past couple of weeks and say, okay, oh, when are the tariffs going to get, um, you know, the 301 tariffs going to get pulled off. And, you know, I have, I have to be kind of the bearer of bad news and say, I, I don't necessarily see that happening right away. Uh, there's a couple of reasons why the first is, uh, the unions don't, the unions, uh, the manufacturing unions in the United States do not want him to do that. Uh, he is very much, uh, aligned with the unions. They are his big supporters. They, they help deliver, you know, significant amount of votes to him. They're going to be very important to his, you know, his reelection or the election of, of the vice president, you know, if he decides not to run. So he's going to, he's going to listen to what they have to say. And right now they are very much in support of these, uh, these tariffs. Um, you know, that could change, you know, there could be, uh, that could evolve over time, but it's not going to happen right away. So, I mean, I think we're, we're looking at these at least for the next six months. What we, what we are really working to do, and when I say we, you know, we're part of uh, a number of coalitions with other trade organizations that are affected by these tariffs. The goal right now is to encourage the Biden administration to improve the exclusion process. Uh, maybe that's the best we can hope for. Maybe not, he's not going to rescind the whole thing, but he can improve the, the, the exclusion process. Uh, and, you know, in that last round of exclusions that they did right before the end of the Trump administration, they, they barely let any, any through. The only ones they let through were really COVID related and maybe a few other, um, a few other small industries. But for the most part, they didn't let any of them through. So the ask right now is, hey, let's improve this exclusion process, let's make it easier, let's make it, um, uh, you know, more broad and, and, and apply to, to, to more of these products and make it more fair uh, so that if you make a good case in front of USTR, you can get your exclusion through which is the way it really was, you know, when they started it, but it kind of, uh, over time dropped off. So I think that's the best we can hope for on, on the China front on, as far as the rest of foreign policy goes. Um, I think you'll see kind of, a, a return to, I don't want to say, um, I, I just say a more predictable foreign policy. Uh, you know, Biden, it's been his thing, uh, you know, his focus for his time in the Senate 
So I, th- I think we'll see kind of a more predictable foreign policy. Um, we won't see uh, as many surprises. Uh, it, that that would be my um, that would be my guess of how how, how that's all going to develop. And um, our relationships with our allies should then improve. I think that I think they will. Um, you know, there was there was a lot of uh, I, don't, I don't know how to describe it. Maybe drama, I guess, is how what I would call it in the last administration. Uh, and there were little flare ups with our allies on occasion. I, I don't think we'll see as as much of that. I mean, that being said, there still will be debates and there will be areas of disagreement. And I'm sure you know it's just a matter of time before we see the first one of those. Mm-hmm. But uh, I I do think it'll be just a little bit more uh, predictable. And, uh, and, you know, maybe when we look at it from a business side of things, uh, when businesses are looking at, you know, political risk and, and, and as far as relate political relationships with other countries, you might be able to predict it a little bit, a little bit better than you did in the past four years. So I think that's, that's a positive, um, you know, going forward. Well, one thing that hasn't been predictable, I think for some of the companies that we work <laughs> with, um, as they are faced with not only, you know, this new administration and, and some of this coming down the pike, but really not having access to capital because of ESG requirements that they may not understand mm-hmm. um, at this point. So um, let's talk a little bit about that. I know the the council is really going to take a very significant stand on helping to educate our members on ESG, how not only to achieve greater metrics and, and progress towards the environment, the social and the governance piece, but also how to report those. Um, especially as our customers are, you know, saying, all right, here's my net zero goal. Show me how to get there. Um, we are definitely going to be working on that with the council and, and you've had a lead role in all of our ESG activities, um, so far. So how does this administration affect all of that? I mean, I think I know broadly we we see a lot more of the operators, you know, saying here's where we're going to get. Um, but what's what's realistic for the small companies or even the mid-cap and larger companies in our space um, in terms of ESG disclosures? What do you see happening there with relation to to policy and government affairs? Yeah, so I think that's going to be a, a very big issue that we should be paying attention to as a sector, and we already are. I mean, I mean, uh, the council obviously has been focusing on ESG for years, uh, and I think the groundwork that we have put in is going to be its its importance is going to be shown here in the next in this administration. Uh, the reason why I say that is I really do think, uh, and I, I never like to predict. You know, some, going forward is always very hard in politics, but I do think we will see some mandatory ESG disclosure requirements uh, within the next couple of years. The reason why I say this is uh, the acting chair of the FEC, Allison Lee. Um, she's been tapped to take over the agency. She has long advocated for this. Uh, I mean, this has been something she's been, been on the record advocating for for years. So she's now going to be in charge. Uh, I think we will see that. Now, uh, I mean, it's probably not going to be right away, but it will be in the next couple of years. I think we're going to see some sort of mandate on ESG reporting. Um, so it's in our, I would argue it's in our sector's benefit to, before those federal requirements come, we want to be out there, out front, and already, and already doing that. Because when when it, when they come out and start making these rules and regulations, uh, us as a sector can say, well, we're actually already doing that. Our companies are already doing this. Um, you know, here here's how an OFS company uh, can report and should report. Here's here's how we're unique for maybe other sectors. Um, all of that needs to be part of that discussion as they come out with these new rules and the regulations. Because the last thing we want to do is get steamrolled over 
and be required to make all these disclosures that don't even really fit our sector or our, you know, the way our businesses operate. Um, so, you know, I think whether you're a, a medium size, a small or a large company in our sector, you need to really right now be up in your ESG reporting, w- w- upping what you're doing on ESG so that you can be ready for these changes, which, which do appear to be, to be coming down the pike. Uh, the last thing you want to be doing is playing, uh, playing catch up. Uh, well, all of a sudden new, new regulation from the FEC comes out and you're kind of running around trying to create an ESG department. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, <laughs> with all those extra funds, we all have with all those around. extra funds. Um, so I, I think, you know, I think the writing was already kind of on the wall, you know, before the, the administration changeover, but I think just, just even really puts an exclamation point on that and says we can't we we need we need to really be paying attention to this as a sector. Um so I, I do think there's gonna be big changes there. Uh I th- and I don't see I really think the question is just gonna be how extensive are they, not whether or not they happen or not. So Right. That seems <clears throat> to be kind of the the overarching theme of all of this. Right. Um is really we saw the writing on the wall. It's happening now. Here's <clears throat> how we can best get out ahead of it. Um, I am so glad that you're the one that's leading all of these efforts for the council. You've been on top of it for a long time. I know that our members reach out to you all the time. So if you are listening to this and you're not a member of the council, that's fine. Um, but if you are, you know, please reach out to Tim anytime he gives. He gives great guidance to our members, and it's just one of the most extraordinary value adds that we have at the council. And we're going to continue, like he said, to work those margins do what we can um, to advocate for all of our member companies in the sector, which are now 600 strong with the council. So Tim, thank you so much for being here today. Um, I appreciate it. We should probably do this like regularly, you know, <laughs> the little administration update. Here's what to look for. I'm, I'm available anytime, Leslie. I'll, 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 I'll be here with bells on. <laughs> all right. And with boots on. Although I'm sad about the rodeo. Oh, me too. I, I kind of saw it coming, but it, it's just... It's it's tough because it was something to look forward to at least. I know, um, and the rodeo, and then Sarah Week too. Like bam, bam, day after day. It's 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 a real bummer. Um, you know, fortunately, you're still going to be able to do the scholarships because a lot yeah. a lot of kids really rely on on those scholarships. Right. Fortunately, they're going to still be able to do that. But just to to get the city together and just have something to be excited about it, it's just it's 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 a real shame. But I know. Mm-hmm. We'll hope for 22. (laughs) All right, we'll keep our fingers crossed. Well, thanks, everyone. Um, I want to thank our sponsors, the Energy Workforce and Technology Council, Galtway Marketing, Locked In Global Energy Marine, and Fletcher's Little Tequila. So rate and subscribe the Energy and Transition podcast on your favorite platform. And thanks, everybody. Have a good afternoon. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on another great episode of the Energy and Transition podcast. Please make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. It's the best way to support the podcast and to grow our community. Also, if you want to reach out to us, please go to our website at energyandtransition.com and we'll catch you in the next episode.